You just witnessed a comment from one of your employees that sounds a bit racially charged to you. You're wondering if it landed the same way with others in the room. And if it did, you also know that leaving it unaddressed doesn't support the inclusive organization that you want. But how do you begin a conversation to confront it? Today, Kwame Christian returns to show us exactly where to start. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 594. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the many conversations that leaders today need to be having effectively is conversations about race. It is a conversation when it comes up that is a difficult conversation for most of us, and many in our listening audience want to approach these conversations with care, with heart, and in a way that will be helpful practically to all parties involved in the conversation. Today, I am so glad to welcome back one of my dear friends who's going to help us to begin difficult conversations about race. I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Kwame Christian. He is a best-selling author, lawyer, professor, and the managing director of the American Negotiation Institute. Kwame has conducted countless specialized trainings worldwide and is a highly sought-after keynote speaker. His best-selling book, Finding Confidence in Conflict, has helped so many people overcome the fear, anxiety, and emotion associated with difficult conversations. The book was inspired by Kwame's TED Talk of the same name that has over a quarter million views. He's also the host of the Negotiate Anything podcast, the most popular negotiation podcast in the world. He is the author of the new book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race, Practical Tools for Necessary Change in the Workplace and Beyond. My friend, what a pleasure to have you back on the show. Dave, it is great to be back. We have so many people who listen to both of our podcasts, so thank you to everyone who has reached out, who tags me regularly on your work and vice versa. And I, I was thinking about this book that you've just written on race and reflecting on a conversation you and I had a couple of years ago. It was right after George Floyd, um, maybe a week or two afterwards, and I had asked you some version of the question of, how are you doing? And your response to me was very similar to what you wrote in the book, and I'm quoting you now, I ran as far away from anything that had to do with racial inequity as I could. For over a year, I stopped watching the news. And one of the other things that you told me in that conversation, and you mentioned in the book, is this included blocking some of your wife Whitney's social media posts because she was posting about what was happening in the world and you didn't want to see it. What got you there? Yeah, it was after working in the social justice, civil rights type of space for a few years and working really hard and seeing other people working really hard. And at the end of the day, 
I looked out there and <laughs> there was still racism. We hadn't solved racism. And so it felt like we were fighting an unwinnable battle. And I just got burnt out, emotionally spent, just exhausted. And so then when I transitioned to start practicing business law and um, mediation and things like that, I completely ran away from it. So no news, no politics, no nothing, no current events. And I was happier than ever, <laughs> Dave. My mental health was in a really, really great place, but I wasn't really contributing in the way that I could. You know, so that's what got me there. And to clarify, I, I blocked Whitney completely <laughs> on social media. Oh wow. Our relationship was fine, but I was I just told Whitney, I said, listen, it's a little bit too woke for me. I've had enough. I need I need some space from this. But I realized after the the murder of George Floyd. And there was so much social unrest and and discomfort around the topic of race. I, I wanted to take the skills that I've learned from negotiation, conflict resolution, and mediation and, and bring it to this space. But it wasn't an easy journey getting me back into that mindset. Yeah. And Whitney challenged you on this. What did she say that changed your mind? She did. She said she's been listening to too many episodes of my podcast. She's a great negotiator. <laughs> she is a great negotiator. She said, Kwame, you're always telling people that they need to lean in and have these difficult conversations in general, and you shouldn't avoid difficult conversations. But that's exactly what you are doing right now. And so essentially, she lovingly and respectfully called me out on my hypocrisy. She was absolutely right. And Given the fact that I'm um, a black male who is an expert in negotiation and conflict resolution with a background in civil rights, I'm uniquely qualified to have the conversation. And so I said, all right, Whit, you win. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to check my box. I'll put on this little Zoom free webinar called How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. I, I named it that, Dave, because I'm very creative. You, <laughs> Actually, you know, I was at that webinar. I remember yeah. you doing that. Yeah. It was yep. live, and wasn't it? It was live. It was a live webinar. And I said, I'm going to just talk about, give you some strategies and then I'll stay as long as you want to answer any questions that you have. And so I, <laughs> I said, I'm going to just promote this for three days. I'll make a post or two and then that'll be it. I was essentially kind of aiming towards failure. And then the post went viral, Dave, and we had over a thousand people, we we maxed out the Zoom capabilities, and we we ended up staying there for like three and a half hours, answering every single question. And wow! And so I realized, my goodness, there is a need for this. People want to learn how to talk about it. And so I remember when we talked about this, Dave, you said, Kwame, how are you going to do this again without burning out? How how can you take care of yourself? And I said, the thing that I'm going to do this time is I'm going to stay in my zone of genius. I'm going to I'm not going to focus on telling people how they should think about race. I'm going to focus on how they should talk about race and give them the tools to have the conversation and focus on how we can make these conversations constructive rather than destructive. And by staying really focused on that, it's been really really rewarding to to lean back into this for the business, for the podcast and of course for the book. You highlight a story in the book about one of your friends who's white and what they mentioned to you about how they tend to find themselves approaching these conversations. What did they say? Yeah, and this was an interesting discussion about microaggressions because they say, 
hey, Kwame, a lot of times a person of color might come to me and say, hey, I've experienced this microaggression and they would explain the situation. And um, just for context, the microaggression is a an interaction that causes offense. And the person who is offended believes that it is as a result of their racial identity or gender identity or some other protected class, something about their who they are as a person. Right. And so when the, my friend would say when they when they heard these complaints, what they would find themselves doing is always rushing in and explaining it, saying, the, oh, it's a misunderstanding or defending the person saying, hey, they didn't mean it that way. And they asked for clarity. Why? What is it in me that that makes me do that? Mm. And I said, well, I think it's really quite simple. <laughs> you you don't like racism and you don't want to admit when it's there. And so what ends up happening is that we approach this with some confirmation bias. I don't want this to be a case of racism in my workplace. That's the conclusion. That's the preferred conclusion. And then what we do is we reinterpret what happened through that lens in order to land on the result that there was no racism. And and Dave, to be quite honest, I mean, this writing this book was really helpful for me. I, my one of my when I was writing my first book, my book coach said that the only way you can make a transformational book is if you transform in the process. So this helped mm-hmm. me to become better as a leader as well because this year, so after I've or, I've already written this this part of the book, one of my employees came to me and she said, "Hey, I'm I'm experiencing microaggressions related to gender. This happened, this happened and this happened." And I said, oh, no, the guys on the team, they don't mean anything like that. Oh, yeah, I know them. This is not an issue, blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry this happened. I'll I'll walk through. I'll talk to them about this and it'll be okay. I just diminished it. And then I went down. I went back down (laughs) and sat there and started watching some TV because it was the end of the day. I was tired. And then I just started thinking. I said, oh, no. Oh, no. I did that thing that I said not to do in my own book. What am I doing? I just I just belittled a, a microaggression. So I, I immediately got right back up and I called her and I said, listen, I am so sorry because what you explained to me was a gender-based microaggression. And what I did was I essentially this was this was gaslighting what I did to you. And I apologize. This this was a serious infraction and I'm going to take care of it. And I think this highlights a couple of things. Number one, nobody's perfect. I make the same mistakes too. And number two, even though you make a mistake, you can recover and you should recover. And we shouldn't let our egos and comfort get in the way of, of leading in the right way. I so appreciate you saying that. It, it- I know I have done this. I remember doing this, the same thing you just described. And it's it seems to me that our tendency for so many of us is to discount either in our minds or out loud when someone else thinks a conversation is about race or gender or insert whatever it is here, and we don't. And you write, whether or not you personally think it's about race, the mere fact that your conversation partner does think it's about race means that you're having a conversation about race. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, that is a reality that is very 
uncomfortable <laughs> for a lot of people. I mean, David, it's uncomfortable for me. I don't I don't want to have to have these conversations all the time, but I have them because they're important. And it goes back to our motto at the American Negotiation Institute. We believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And so if we as leaders want to avail ourselves to the possibility of having a workplace that is inclusive and people feel as though they belong, we have to have these conversations. And that means sometimes somebody's perception is going to lead them to believe that race was a factor. And it doesn't need to be the entirety of the conversation, but even if an element of the conversation is about race, now the conversation becomes about race. And so it's that element of surprise that can be really, really challenging for people. Because when you think you're talking about XYZ business issue, and then somebody says, by the way, race is involved in it. If we're not prepared, then we don't know how to really handle that conversation well. And even if the conversation is 1% about race, if you mess up that 1%, you could 100% fail in that conversation if you don't handle that element effectively. So I really want to encourage people to try to become more aware so they can perform at a higher level in these conversations. It's why I think these frameworks that you teach are so critical. And one of them is that that you want to win, but winning isn't about, like you want to win in a conversation, but it's not about confrontation. It's about what are your goals for the conversation? Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. And so in these conversations, they're very emotional. And conversations about race get emotional for two main reasons. Number one, it's identity. And number two, it is morality. So identity, who we are, and how somebody like me should act in the situation. And then morality, what does it mean to be a good or bad person? And those seem to be triggered from time to time in these conversations, which leads to more emotionality. And so I really want people to focus on their goals during the conversation, because a lot of times when you are triggered, when you are very emotional, you focus on doing what it takes to satisfy that emotional need in the moment. And when you're in that emotional state of mind, you're engaged in short-term thinking. And so you're going to satisfy that immediate need, but you're going to often do that at the expense of your long-term goals. So I want to encourage people to be a bit more strategic in these conversations in order to make sure that they're, they're aligning their approach to their goals. And I do not see that enough. What's an example of something that someone would do in advance of a conversation where uh, they know it's going to be difficult, maybe they know it's going to be about race or they suspect it will be, that starts to frame either the question they ask themselves or gets them in that place of thinking about what are my goals? Yeah. So the number one thing is prepare. The best thing you can do to improve your negotiation outcomes without getting into all the studies, I, I want to, but I won't. Just know that preparation helps. And so we created a, a guide. If you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash race, you can get access to a guide that helps you to prepare systematically for these conversations. So you don't need to go in and freestyle and hope for the best. You actually have a plan that you can follow during the conversation without feeling robotic. You just feel like you're more prepared. And now you might not have enough time to go to download that guide, but you can use what I call the three-minute prep. And this is for any difficult conversations. So what you do is you ask yourself, what is my goal during this conversation? And then you ask, what is their goal? 
during the conversation? And then what are three open-ended questions I can ask during the conversation? So you write down your goal, their goal, and three questions that you can ask during the conversation. And just doing that will help to make sure that you are more prepared and it'll help you to feel a lot more confident in the conversation. And it comes back to what we said earlier and framing this whole conversation we're having is it's about starting. Like this isn't the end of the conversation, but if you can get started in a good way by preparing and having a couple of questions that you can approach the conversation, you're going to set yourself up a lot better than if you just go in not having thought that through. Exactly. And I'm I'm telling you, Dave, it's it's magical. when you actually take the time. But again, the biggest mistake people make when it comes to leading up to these conversations is that they simply don't take the time. And then the conversation falls apart. Well, just to reinforce what you just said, one of the most common questions I find that we're asking in our academy cohorts when we get into situations where we're talking about tough conversations, whether it's about race or tough feedback or anything else that's a difficult conversation, is what's your goal for this conversation? Like, if you're going to have this conversation, what does you want to have come out of it? And oftentimes, the person we're asking that question to does not have a clear response to that question. And so we're spending time thinking that through first. Like, what do you, what's actually the thing you're trying to accomplish? And it is amazing how when that gets down on paper and gets clear on like, okay, here's what I'm trying to accomplish— then the, okay, what would you ask? The tactical things start to become clear. Not easy, but clearer as far as like where you'd begin. Absolutely. And and Dave, to that point, a lot of times in the business world, we're focused on something tangible, like a, there's some kind of tangible outcome. But you'd be surprised a lot of times when you're having these conversations, the your conversation partner, their goal might just be to be heard. They might just want to emote. They might just want to share. And so that becomes, again, it's not an easy conversation, but what you need to do becomes a lot easier to execute because you say, oh, I don't even need to push them in any direction. I just need to be here and share space with them and let them feel safe being vulnerable and and be that that trusted confidant to hear them. And that might be it. You know, and so again, if we get really clear on what it is that we want, what it is that they want, everything else should be aligned to meet those goals. One of the mindsets that you have shared for years on any negotiation, race no different, right, is the mindset of giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. And I want to read a couple of sentences of what you write about this. Uh, You say, Giving others the benefit of the doubt in difficult conversations is also a smart strategic choice. While it might seem naive or foolish, it actually puts you in a better position for success. People often perform to your level of expectation. When you assume the worst, they perform poorly. If you assume the best, they perform better. It also makes it easier for you to focus on the conversation at hand because you're not burdened with the emotions associated with assuming the worst. I was thinking about that, and I know that that is really hard to do in some situations. And some people would say, you don't know what this person has done, like how much they have wronged me or all of the things that they have done in the past and the history. And I think it's interesting that you talk about in the book that even in the cases where someone has really acted poorly, you still recommend having the mindset of giving them the benefit of the doubt. What's the value in doing that, even in those tough situations? The benefit of the doubt is a gift that you give yourself. 
because when you are in the heat of the moment and you start to take things personally, like this person is doing this to me with intent, then it often stirs up an emotional response. And so the way we we understand with the way the brain works, when your emotions driven by your amygdala are firing, you're not thinking at your best. You're not thinking as clearly as you would want. So the frontal lobe is where you have your highest level functioning. So you have executive function, um, emotion management, logical reasoning, those types of things are located in the frontal lobe, but there's an antagonistic relationship between the amygdala and the frontal lobe. So if you're very emotional, you're not thinking as clearly. And if you're thinking clearly, you're less emotional. And so for me, in these difficult conversations, I want to make sure that I am thinking as clearly as possible. And so in my mind, when I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt, this is what I'm saying to myself. I'm saying that this person is trying the very best that they can under the circumstances. And perhaps, Dave, their very best under these circumstances isn't very good. (laughs) (laughs) their their best might not be very good their best might lead them to do and say things that are inappropriate and wrong but if i try to think that they're trying their best it helps me to perform at a higher level and now again when i take the time at the beginning of the conversation to get really clear on what my goals are i'm not compromising on my goals never i i think in the entire book I don't think the word compromise comes up one time unless I'm saying don't compromise, right? I'm I'm a lawyer, right? I have to have goal-oriented conversations. So I can't compromise. That's just not the way that we operate. But I will make sure that I'm putting myself in the right mindset to perform at the highest level possible. Yeah, and it's interesting you 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 often say that people assume negotiation and difficult conversations is about is compromise like that's what the the tactic always is and that there's actually so much more nuance to how to approach this and and speaking of how to approach it you have a three step framework that is so useful for almost any conversation that's difficult but particularly a conversation where race is involved and the framework to engage communication is something you call situation impact invitation. Could you highlight what that looks like and what those three steps sound like? Yeah, and so the the situation impact invitation framework for starting a conversation comes from the fact that oftentimes the start of the conversation is the hardest part because in these situations, like we described earlier, sometimes the people around you might not even realize that race is an issue. People might not even know that a difficult conversation needs to happen. And so it's your responsibility then to start the difficult conversation. So how do we do that? That's really, really tough to do. And so I like to keep it as simple as possible. So we describe the situation. That's the first step using what I call naked facts. So these are facts that are stripped of all judgment, all interpretation, and all of those types of things. So we want the facts to be so clean that no matter what side of the issue you find yourself on, you can agree, yes, that is in fact what occurred. And then you talk about the impact and you want to personalize the impact. This is the impact it had on me. So you can talk about inconveniences. You can talk about the impact on your emotional state, those type of things. And then the next step is 
the invitation because we don't want people to feel ambushed during these conversa- conversations. We're not letting them off the hook and saying, you don't have to have the conversation, but we're saying, would you like to have it now or later? What works? So the conversation could go something like this. Let's say somebody said something inappropriate during a meeting. You want to address the person. And so we're going to call them in versus calling them out after the meeting and have the conversation. Hang on just a second. That distinction, yeah. calling someone in versus calling them out. Tell me about that distinction. Oh, yes. So when we're calling somebody out, what we're doing is we are m- making them aware of the fact that we don't like what they did or said, but we're often doing that in a public arena. And now there are certain circumstances where it is appropriate and necessary to call people out. So if there's something like ongoing danger or an ongoing offense, something like that, then yes, we need to jump in, take action to make sure that it doesn't continue. But if it's a passing slight, the meeting has moved on, those type of things, it makes more sense to call the person in for a couple of reasons. So number one, if I'm calling somebody in, I'm making it a one-on-one conversation versus in front of other people. Because the bigger the audience, the more it shifts from a conversation to a presentation. The person is now performing and they are trying to save face. They're not Uh... going to be as willing to admit wrongdoing because they they have an audience. So I want to remove that performative acts aspect. And it makes it a lot easier for somebody to address the situation wholeheartedly and make adjustments because it is not a shame-based tactic. I don't want them to feel shame. I want them to understand the impact of what they did and let them know that it's okay and they can change. And we're going to work through that together. So calling in is usually a better strategy if you want long-term behavior change. Huh. Fascinating. So approaching this through this lens, I mean, one of the, I think oftentimes when we hear a framework like this, traditionally, especially when it's been a conversation about race, we've thought about it as, at least I've thought about it as, the person who's been wronged is approaching someone else, someone powerful, a peer, a colleague, and saying, hey, this happened, and I want to address it. And that, of course, is one really powerful way this framework could be used. But I'm really interested in looking at this from the framework of the person who has power, the person who may be observed, the manager, the leader of the organization or of the meeting, who saw something happen and how they might approach it. So I'm, I'm kind of curious like what that looks like when we go back and look at these three steps of situation impact invitation of, you mentioned under situation that having the facts be what you called naked facts. So you call someone in. What's an example of what a naked fact would sound like? So let's say somebody said something inappropriate at a meeting. And so afterwards, what we would say is, hey, Dave, in the meeting, you said X, Y, Z. And I would try to quote that as closely as possible, right? And that's it. That is it. We keep it simple. And when we think about situation impact invitation, like all together, this should take between 10 and 30 seconds tops. It doesn't need to be long and verbose because the reality is that people don't want to have these conversations typically, and their defensive nature will cause them to point out inaccuracies as you're leading into the conversation. And so for me, I want it to be as quick and simple and agreeable as possible because we can agree upon what actually happened because I don't want to invite unnecessary resistance this early into the conversation. So this whole this whole framework might be five, six, seven sentences versus this is a 20 or 30 minute you know, framework for an entire conversation. 
Exactly. I mean, here, here's an example. And the, the meeting example, I'm, I'm really, I didn't want to do because I don't want to <laughs> just give examples of racist things that people can say <laughs> on your podcast. But let's give another example. Let's say you're in, in HR, and then you realize that there there's a discrepancy in the retention rates between people of color and um, and white people in the organization. And so what you could say is, hey, I was looking through the statistics, and I saw that Blacks and Latinos are 14% more likely to leave after one year when compared to their white counterparts. And so for me, in, in diversity, equity, and inclusion, that is leading to an issue as it relates to our retention rates. And so I want to have a conversation with you to talk about what we could do to address this. So that's a little freestyle, but again, just shows how simple it is. You, you're, I'm not making any assertions at this point. I'm just letting them know what the facts are and the fact that I want to talk about it. Yeah. And what's missing from what you just said is uh, is opinion in that it's just the, hey, here's what happened. Here's how it landed with me, which is factual, right? And then I'm making an invitation. And so you're not you're not accusing you're not you're not trying to wrong someone else like you said there's no shame here that's not the intention the intention is let's engage in a conversation about this exactly you made a wonderful invitation to me on another way to think about this framework is I'm perhaps the person with power in a room I'm running a meeting I'm leading the organization I'm the owner of the business insert powerful position here and You've seen something happen in a meeting. Someone said something that landed with you awkwardly as the person watching it and perhaps impacted someone else in the room. And you invited me to think about this framework as this is a framework for perhaps not even starting with the person who said something, but that you might actually use this as a framework as a starting point for the person that may or may not have experienced an impact from it. What would that look like? Yes, great question. So in this case, let's assume that the leader is white and there, let's assume that the person who is the potentially aggrieved party is a person of color. And so you want to be an ally in this situation. And so one of the things that we, we've realized when it comes to allyship is that allies need guidance. This is the way it should go because you might want to jump in and swoop in and, and be the hero, but the person may not want you to do that. <laughs> and so as an ally, we have to be humble enough to, to accept the guidance from the people that we want to align ourselves with. And so what you would do in this situation is, and this is, the, this is a minor tweak, we would give them permission to reject this offer. And here's why. Because a lot of times people of color are very exhausted with what is happening as it relates to race. Working in the corporate world is challenging enough for everybody. It is busy, it is stressful, but then when you add the emotional element of racial inequity, microaggressions, those type of things, it becomes really, really challenging and it can be really exhausting. And sometimes the people of color just don't want to deal with it. Not today. I just, not today, Dave, I'm not feeling it. I appreciate it, but I, I, I'm not feeling it today. And so in that situation, what I would do in, in order to have your colleague in that situation feel empowered and feel safe is I would start off with a negotiation strategy where you actually invite them to reject you. 
where you let them know it is okay to say no. And this is a classic move that you can do to make people feel safer in any interaction. So you could say, hey, Dave, um, I wanted to chat with you about the meeting. But before I do, I want to let you know that if if you are not interested in what I'm about to say, feel free to say no. I just want I value you as somebody who's on the team and I want to bring this up. And if it, if if you're not interested or if you don't need this assistance, that's completely OK. But in the meeting, I noticed that Jim said X, Y, Z, and that made me feel uncomfortable and it made me concerned that it might have had a negative impact on you. And so I wanted to see if you wanted to have a conversation about that and if you wanted me to do anything about that. But again, if you would rather me just let this go, I'll let it go. But regardless, I want to follow your lead and let you know that I have you have my support. The framework is the same. It's exactly here's the same. what here's what I heard. Here's how it landed with me. Maybe it landed that way with you. I don't know. And the invitation in this case is do you want me to take a next step? Do you want me to engage in that difficult conversation with that person? Or is this something like you said, not today? I need to I need to set it aside. Exactly. Yeah. And again, keep it we have to keep it simple because listen, I have uh I've done some research on your audience, Dave. And um, you know what I found? I found that your audience is very intelligent. Okay. And one thing about intelligent people is that we can think, which is a good thing, but we can also overthink, which is a bad thing. And a lot of times what we do is we over-intellectualize these challenges as a way for our fear to get in the way and stop us from doing what we need to do. So, oh, I see potentially a microaggression. I see some potential racial inequity. Let me think about this. Let me think about this. Let me think about this. At some point, we get to a point where additional thinking is actually detrimental. It's time to take action. So that's why I've spent so much time (laughs) trying to keep all of these tools and tactics and strategies as simple as possible because I don't want people to be able to use the excuse of, I need to think it through. You just need to have the conversation. We started this conversation about where you began this conversation you're now having with folks about race. And obviously, a lot changed for you in the last few years since George Floyd and since that conversation with Whitney. I'm curious what changed in writing the book. Now, with the book being out and you've had so many conversations with people about the frameworks in this book, what's something that's that you've changed your mind on since the book began? So one of the things that was really interesting for me is that it gave me an opportunity to go deeper into the psychology. And one of the things that was really fascinating to me was the ubiquitous nature of bias. Bias is just the natural way that the brain works. We always think about bias as a bad thing, but as I started to learn more about it, we should start to leverage biases in our favor when appropriate. And we can do that. So I'll I'll use the affinity bias, for example. So affinity bias is our tendency to like people who are like us. Understanding the psychology of affinity bias helps us to understand how we can build rapport and overcome some of these biases in a very targeted type of way. So for example, when Whitney was pregnant, I was thinking about the literature about how black and brown people are often treated more poorly by the medical profession. But Whitney's also a doctor. So when I was going to her maternity visits, I would always mention 
that Whitney was a doctor. She practices at OSU. And like her doctors and the nurses would all light up. They would say, oh my gosh, that's great. Do you know this person? Do you know that person? Those type of things, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead of seeing her as somebody who's different, now they look at her and see her as somebody who's the same. And so one of the Mm -hmm. challenges I, I give to people in these conversations is always trying to find ways to build rapport with specificity. And so, of course, I knew about building rapport before, but when I listened to, looked at it through the lens of trying to intentionally create positive biases in my favor, it took it to a new level because I could do it with a lot more precision. Kwame Christian is the author of How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race, Practical Tools for Necessary Change in the Workplace and Beyond. Kwame, always appreciate your work. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is a past episode that Kwame and I aired together, episode 497, The Way into Difficult Conversations. In that episode, we looked at his compassionate curiosity framework that he's been teaching for many years. I have used it in negotiations myself. It is so helpful, and it gets to the heart of the difficult conversations we often have uh, when we're trying to really understand where the other party's coming from and be able to move forward together. In this episode today, we talked about that first 20, 30 seconds in how to get started in a difficult conversation. Uh, In episode 497, we talk about what's the next step. It's a great follow-up to this conversation, so I encourage you to utilize that to keep the conversation going. Also recommended episode 510, How to Reduce Bias and Feedback. Therese Houston shared her research with us on that episode, looking at where bias shows up for all of us, because it does for every single one of us, and especially how that shows up in feedback situations. It's a place that bias often will come out in ways that we don't anticipate, can be blind spots for many of us. In episode 510, Therese helped us to look at where those common places are and what we can do as a better job when we are in the process of giving feedback to someone. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 552, The Way Managers Can Be Champions for Justice. Minda Hartz was my guest on that episode. She's the best-selling author of The Memo and Right Within, uh, doing incredible work for supporting women of color in organizations. In episode 552, we talk about what you can do as a manager to support women of color in your organization and, of course, diversity, equity, and inclusion more broadly. If you're looking for ways that you can utilize the work you're doing today to be a better advocate, episode 552, a great starting point for you. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. There's a number of resources they have access to the moment you set up your free membership. And one of them is the episode library that is there, all of our episodes since 2011, searchable by topic. We have organized the website, not in chronological order by episode, but rather to help you to find the episode that you need to hear. So whatever the topic is that you can zero in and will be immediately helpful to you on whatever's going on in your organization right now. And if you're thinking about diversity and inclusion, I'd encourage you to go there. That's one of the topic areas inside of the episode library. We've aired seven or eight episodes related to diversity and inclusion just in the last year. It is an important and critical topic for all leaders that we're going to continue to 
help us all to get better at and to have the conversations and to begin the conversations that we talked about today. It's one of many of the two dozen topic areas inside the free membership library. All of that's available just by going over to coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership. You'll be able to access that and so many other resources inside of the free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Amy Gallo back to the show. She's from Harvard Business Review and is going to be returning to help us to figure out how to deal with passive aggressive people. Join us for that important conversation with Amy. Have a great week and I'll see you back on Monday.